Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 6th, 2023. Uh, last year, I did a really interesting show with the writer Akash Kapoor um, on his book, Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Aurora-ville, uh, uh, which was a, uh, a, a utopian community in the 1960s in India. Um, Akash's book is a really interesting, um, quite moving narrative about growing up in this utopian community. Um, not much remains, still a little bit. It's an interesting story. But before um, Auroraville, there was an American utopian community in the 19th century, Oneida community, um, founded by a man called John Humphrey Noyes. And we have a really interesting book out about it. It's just out. Actually, it's out tomorrow, but we can count it as out today. It's certainly available if you order it now. Um, the book is An Assassin in Utopia, the true story of a 19th century sex cult and a president's murder. And I'm thrilled that uh, its author, Susan Wells, is joining us just from um, uh, over the Golden Gate Bridge um, in Mill Valley in California. Susan, um, growing up in California, isn't it one big utopia, a kind of... Uh, 21st century version of uh, Oneida community? Well, tell you the truth, I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, and hearing the stories about Mill Valley and the Bay Area, it certainly sounded like a utopia, uh, but it was very different than the Oneida community in the 19th century. How do I pronounce it? Of course, I always mispronounce everything. That's Oneida. Oneida, and it's O-N-E-I-D-A, so it's quite easy to mispronounce it. And of course, ge geographically, is it still in that city of Oneida in New York, upstate New York? The Oneida community is still in upstate New York. Uh, it's a historical site and the mansion house is still there. You can go tour it. I believe you can even stay there. So tell us a story, Susan. It's it's one of those stories that if a fiction writer made it up, you say this is, this is impossible to believe, but it's true. What, what actually happened? Who was this guy, John Humphrey Noyes? John Humphrey Noyes uh, was a religious, religiously inspired utopian. And the fact was that he grew up incredibly shy. He couldn't even talk to women he, he didn't know. He created his own world. He created a utopian society where there was no shame, where he was considered perfect, absolutely above anybody's judgment. So it really got him over his paralytic shame. And then in the process, he also created the most successful utopian community in American history. They lasted for more than 30 years. Reading and thinking about him, I'm of course, um, what comes to mind are the Mormons and Joseph Smith, uh, who was also uh, a very successful religious leader. How, how would you compare Noyes and Smith and the community in Oneida and the, the Mormon community uh, that, of course, went to Salt Lake? Well, Joseph Smith was earlier in the 1820s. 
Noyes founded the Oneida community in 1848, but it all happened in upstate New York. Joseph Smith lived there. John Humphrey Noyes created his community there. And there were so many utopian experiments that came out of uh, upstate New York, including the Shakers, for example, um, that it was it was called the Burned Over District. It was just a, a fountain of religious revival, early American experiments, religious and otherwise. The reason I ask is because you know, when we look back at the Anita community now, we raise our eyebrows. It's rather odd. It's a curiosity of history. But of course, um, the Mormons and Joseph Smith are now really important figures in American history. Is there anything in, in any way different between the two? You talk about this second, I mean, it's really part of the Second Great Awakening, this religious fervor, which wasn't only centered in, in, in upstate New York, although clearly that was a center. Uh, would you group the two together? I'm, I mean, are they as rational or as irrational, crazy and, or, or as normal as, 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 as each other? Well, I think they were very representative of the time. The American Revolution shattered institutions, political, religious, and social. And so charismatic leaders filled the void, like Joseph Smith and like John Humphrey Noyes. And between the, the revolution and the Civil War in 1860, there were more than 70 utopian experiments that blossomed on American soil. And in many ways, it was sort of like the 1960s where you just had just a, an imaginative flourishing of social structures. Uh, but as far as comparing uh, the Mormons and the Oneidans, um, the Mormons, of course, believed in plural marriage. The Oneidans believed in group marriage. Uh, every man was married to every woman. And sex was the highest form of worship. And it was a very refined skill that they were trained for. And of course, it was all controlled by John Humphrey Noyes. To what extent, I mean, when I hear of these stories, Susan, I have to admit that as a naturally skeptical person, I, I assume it's just um, uh, the, 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 the sexual obsession or craving of a, of a rather awkward young man who probably these days would be a computer programmer or a startup technology founder. Um, who used all this nonsense as an excuse to uh, have sex with lots of different women. Is that a fair analysis or, or do we need to be more generous? I think it's a fair analysis. And I think it's happened over and over and over again in human history. And it's still happening today. I mean, the news reports are full of them. So this guy, I mean, was there anything? How would you read his... Or how would you make sense of his career? I mean, he wasn't consciously sitting down and saying, how am I going to go to bed with as many women as I can? What was his mental process? Did he genuinely have some sort of religious calling experience? Did he wake up one morning and think that God had spoken to him? He did. Um, in fact, in 1831, when the Second Great Awakening was really sweeping the country, he was living in Vermont and he was going to uh, these tent raisings and um, religious revivals. And he was very skeptical at first, but um, he got the bug. And then he was 
he was training for the law. Actually, he'd, be, he'd become a lawyer, but he was so shy that he was just stammering through his first case. But he decided to pursue theology and he went to Dartmouth and then he went to Andover Academy in Yale. Um, but pretty disreputable institutions, yeah. <laughs> not, not exactly. I mean, like, yeah, there, were, there weren't any women there, so you couldn't have lots of sex like the undergraduates these days. No, he was still he was still very shy, and he was a, he was a shy virgin. But uh, there was a preacher, a teacher at Yale, who said, "Follow your own truth, even if it carries you over Niagara Falls." Was this Finney Charles Grant's? Uh, no, it was it was a different it was a different preacher. Um, but in any case, this was a time when. Uh, Emerson said, "Every work, every working man, or every thinking man, has a draft of a new community in his pocket. So, the individual was the world, and if you could think it, you could do it. And that's one of the themes that I think runs through this book is that so many of these characters, whether it was John Humphrey Noyes or James Garfield or uh, the, the assassin Charles Gateau." Horace Greeley, they all believed that they could make something amazing of, the, of themselves and their lives. Anything was possible in this pre-Civil War America. So this, uh, um, I, you live over the Golden Gate Bridge in, in, in Mill Valley. I live in San Francisco. To our south, um, uh, as you know, Susan, uh, there are lots of technology founders. Is Silicon Valley in some ways a little bit like the world you, you write about in this book? I think it's different because the world that I write about was taken on faith. It was not about science, uh, but I think Sil Silicon Valley is obviously a hub of imaginative enterprise, but it's it's based on science. It's based on research and facts. And I don't think in the 1830s, 40s and 50s, and even 60s in the United States, these societies were too concerned with facts. It was all about faith, whether it was religious or social, they were just kind of making it up as they went along. Yeah, but, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, this is not the subject of your book, but when I look at some of the themes of the community, whether it's mutual criticism or male continence, uh, the role of women, and, of course, uh, the, the proto-eugenic eugenics program that's so controversial, it, it sort of brings to mind some of the odder examples in Silicon Valley. Anyway... We're not. This is not a book about Silicon Valley. It's not really even a book about the early 19th century. It's a book about an assassination in Utopia, uh, uh, the assassination of James Garfield, uh, one of the lesser-known American presidents, by a, a graduate of uh, of the community, Charles. Uh, how do I pronounce his name? A, Julius Charles Julius Guiteau. 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 Like guitar, except Guiteau. <laughs> yes. So tell me a little bit about Guiteau. Was he a, a classic example of the kind of odd fellow who ended up in uh, this utopia? Well, he was odder than most. Um, it, it is true that Oneida attracted a lot of oddballs because there it was a land of opportunity for people who wanted to be promiscuous. Um, they tried to start screening people by engaging in law. Hold on, Susan, you said a, a land of opportunity for people who wanted to be promiscuous. So they came to this place for to be prom promiscuous. It was the uh, it was legitimizing promiscuity. Was that its its main attraction? 
it was religious, remember? So um, it was a form of worship, but they made absolutely no secret of their practices. In fact, they published newspapers, which they distributed for free around the country to subscribers. They wrote annual reports, which John Humphrey Noyes put in the hands of Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune and even the governor of New York. So they were, they felt that by proselytizing, by letting people know what they were doing, they were going to attract legions of followers. And in fact, they did attract a lot of applicants. Um, Charles Guiteau. I mean, just looking at their photos, and I, I have to admit, I, know, I mean, they look, then, whether it's Noise or, or Greeley or uh, Guiteau, they look the nerdiest kind of characters. They never would be able to charm a woman, would they? Well, now, Greeley, he might have been nerdy, but he was married, and he was not a member of the Oneida community. I want to make that very clear. But he did follow their progress because he was very interested in utopian communities. And that's another theme in the book. I mean, I, I write a lot about Oneida, but I also write a lot about the utopian impulse and all of the really amazing experiments that arose during this time and the connections between them. So, um, but yes, getting back to Gateau, um, he wrote lots of letters begging to be admitted. They finally let him in and he was obviously an oddball. He would just mutter and gesture maniacally and he would, uh, he, he wanted to uh, take John Humphrey Noyes' place as the leader of the community and he was convinced that one day he was going to be president of the United States. Anyway, he ended up leaving the United community but only survived for about three months on the outside. They let him back in and a month later he left, for, I mean, a year later he left for good. What about the, the women? I mean, it must have been the most awful experience. I mean, it was bad generally, I guess, being a woman in early 19th century America. Um, but, but to find yourself in one of these communities where a man like Charles Guiteau forced himself on you and there wasn't much you could do about it. Did these women choose to live in this community? Well, first of all, nobody forced themselves on anybody, really, uh, except for the leaders, perhaps. In the they, could they say no? They want to have anything to do with this guy? They could say no. And in fact, their nickname for Charles Gateau was Get Out. <laughs> so he was very unsuccessful, which was why one of the one of the main reasons why he left the community. So, um, so but then, sorry to ask nope. these rather dirty kinds of questions, but then what's the difference between the community and outside? I mean, you can always choose to try and seduce a, a woman if you want. The difference was uh, one of the big problems for women in the 19th century was pregnancy. And one of the practices in the United community was male continence, which meant that men were not allowed to ejaculate. And that was a trained skill. So they had to they had to be trained for it. And young men were trained by postmenopausal women. This is one of the features of the community. So women were protected from unwanted pregnancies, generally speaking. There were failures, but generally speaking, they were protected. They were also treated as equal members of the community, although John Humphrey Noyes believed that they were inferior to men. But Compared to what was happening on the outside, it wasn't a horrible place for adult women who chose to be there. It was a horrible experience for many young women who grew up in the community who were initiated by the older men, especially John Humphrey Noyes.
I mean, coming back to the Kapoor book, I mean, he he grew up in a family. I mean, there were kids born in Auroraville in the 1960s in India. Were there? I mean, in spite of this male continence thing, um, which sounds very painful, um, were there um, were there children born in this community? Absolutely, there were children born in the community, but they had a very kibbutz-like approach to children. They had a special children's house. Now, noise really condemned close emotional attachments between men and women. He wanted everybody to be married to everybody, so don't get too fond of your partner for the evening. But he also condemned and discouraged close bonds with children. So it believed the age of 15 months, children were placed in this children's house, and they were raised by community members who were designated to run the children's house and care and look after the kids. Once they hit puberty, then they were considered full members of the community. Um, I mean, it sounds in an odd way as if they read Moore's Thomas Moore's 16th century book, Utopia, and took it seriously, didn't understand that it was satire. Where, where was their inspiration for all this? Ah, the inspiration actually came from a man named uh, Charles Fourier, who was a Frenchman back in the 18th century. I knew it would all arrive. I knew the French would be here somewhere. (laughs) It was very French, the whole thing. (laughs) He was actually a traveling salesman and an amateur anthropologist. And he believed that human beings should live together in these four-story buildings called phalansteries with, I believe, 1,620 residents, and that they should basically follow their passion when it came to their work lives, when it came to their love lives. He had a whole set of instructions about these communities. Anyway, there was a young American named Albert Brisbane who got to know Fourier before he died and who published a lot of his, his ideas in the American press and in, in, in a book, which became incredibly popular, but he left out a lot of Fourier's amorous ideas and his rather head scratching propositions that the oceans would turn into lemonade and that every woman should have four simultaneous husbands. It was a very cleaned up version of Fourier, but it inspired communities including Brook Farm, it inspired Oneida, it inspired many, many of these experimental utopian societies that sprang up in America before the Civil War. Yeah, Fourier is influential in the socialist movement and socialist ideals. Marx also wrote about this. Was there much politics in, in this? I mean, you, you, you've stressed the, the, the religious element. Was it a, a, a a radical kind of Christian socialism? Is that one way of thinking? Ideally, in its best sense. I mean, clearly, there were some very dark and and rotten parts of this. Yeah, it it was. um, They they actually referred to it as communism. So this was, again, this was before 1917. It was before communism became, you know, what what we think of it today. Um, And Much of the impulse for communism in the United States, certainly in these communities, was this horrible depression of 1837, when literally people were dying on the streets and freezing to death and starving to death. And Horace Greeley saw this, and so did the founder of Brook Farm. So did John, well, John Humphrey Noyes 
picked up on their ideas when he was creating the Oneida community. But it, it, it the, the, the communist impulse came out of a sense of absolute desperation because capitalism as they knew it, uh, people were, were dying of starvation. And, so and what was the economics of the community? Clearly it was a farming community. Was it well organized? Were people well fed? Uh, presumably it was based, I know that part of New York has relatively rich farmland. It was extremely well organized. They had committees for everything. And people would rotate through different jobs. Um, they had, you know, there was a whole staff in the kitchen. You know, of course, people would rotate through that. Um, they they ate very well, very healthily, and they had enormous an enormous number of enterprises. They made furniture, they made jam, they made silk thread, but they were especially famous for their animal traps. Uh, and they shipped them all over the country. And they were so incredibly prosperous that by 1861, um, they were they were making more money than they ever had. And they were starting to to hire people in the community to work for them. So uh, it was it's one of the reasons it lasted so long. It was incredibly prosperous. And of course, it morphed into the Oneida Silverware Company. And if you look in your kitchen drawer, there's a good chance that you have some of their products. So do you think, in a way, you might be a little unkind linking this utopia, which in some ways clearly worked and might have had an element of proto-socialism about it? I mean, clearly there were some very problematic sides to it, too. And this assassination, after all, America, if America's famous for anything, it's for bearing lunatics. And Charles Julius uh, Guiteau is no more or less of a lunatic than uh, many of the mass killers today. Every week we seem to have another mass killing. God knows what this guy would have done if he could have bought a semi-automatic uh, weapon. Um, to what extent is he so typical of this community? I mean, presumably he could have gone on to murder Garfield without being part of this utopian community, or are they so interwoven that they're inseparable? Well, what I did was I took two really gobsmacking stories and I wove them together. Now, it's also very true that during the trial, they brought up his association with the United community a lot. And so did the newspapers. And they were laying the fact that he was demented on his association with the United community. John Humphrey Noyes sent testimony to the trial. They also subpoenaed his roommate at Oneida. So it's not like these stories never collided. They absolutely did collide. They collided, but presumably he was still an exception. As you say, his nickname was Get Out. He was a very unattractive man. He, would, he, he went there to have sex with lots of different women. Presumably he had a little bit of sex, but not as much as he wanted. Why was he such a, a, a typical graduate? Well, what's, what's interesting about Gateau and Oneida. It really is about Gateau and John Humphrey Noyes. He modeled himself on John Humphrey Noyes. So when he was a member of the United Community, he wanted to take over for John Humphrey Noyes. Well, John Humphrey Noyes also was absolutely obsessed with newspapers, and he was obsessed with Horace Greeley, who had launched the New York Tribune in 1841 he wanted to write he wanted to create a religious daily newspaper and Greeley, of course eventually founded the new yorker too well he found, founded the new yorker first and then he founded 
the New York Tribune. But in any case, he was he was um, a towering figure in early journalism. So so you have John Humphrey Noyes, who was obsessed with Horace Greeley. Who did Gateau become obsessed with? Horace Greeley, and left Oneida to start a religious daily newspaper modeled on Greeley's New York Tribune. He failed miserably because he had absolutely no experience or any contacts. Does this reflect badly on noise? I mean, presumably Gateau was crazy and he became obsessed with noise. Does that in any way reflect badly on noise or was it just accidental that was this it, it man fixated on something or other and he happened to fixate on noise? It was accidental. It was it was Gateau's character. He was he had a maniacally inflated ego, and he just happened to model himself on noise. But it led to his relationship with Horace Greeley. He went to Greeley to ask for a job, which he did not get. But when Greeley ran for president in 1872, Gateau decided to campaign for him and wrote a speech, and was convinced that if he gave this speech and supported Horace Greeley, Greeley, if elected, would reward him by making him a foreign minister. This was the template for his relationship with James Garfield. He did exactly the same thing. In fact, in fact, he rewrote his speech for Greeley as a speech for Garfield and expected to be rewarded as minister to France. So these stories are very connected. It's, it's not a simple A to Z. But the story, the book traces the entire thing. It's the whole story is really detailed. It's from Horace Greeley to James Garfield to Charles Guiteau. Yeah. Um, with a, a slight interloid in the ends, John Humphrey Noyes. What about Garfield, um, uh, Susan? What does your book tell us? He, he's one of the least well-known American presidents. He was, of course, assassinated. Tell us a little bit about him. Uh, and is he just, again, uh, so someone who tragically i guess got 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 involved in this story why is he interesting and does he fit into this narrative of the second great awakening and religious fundamentalism and open society and all the rest of it well he he does fit into that because he was brought up during that time so his religious affiliation was with a group called the disciples um he is one of those bearded presidents that most Americans know nothing about. I mean, this this is sort of a passed over history that's just not taught in schools. People just have a blur <laughs> about yeah, probably, it's probably then anyone who wants to run for president shouldn't have a beard. Do you think that's right? <laughs> well, certainly if you're from the 19th century, you should not run for president. But Garfield was he was a lovely guy. Um, he had flaws. He was um, very moody. He was not all that self-confident, but he, he really wanted to have a life, quote unquote, with thunder in it. And again, this is the age of the individual. And when people believed that they had the, the capacity to really make an impact on the world. So Garfield is connected to, to that story as well. But he was a very big, burly man. He was a terrific scholar. He was well known as a, as a speaker, um, but you know he he always he never really put, wanted to put himself forward. He was the youngest person ever uh, ever elected to the Ohio State Senate at the time, but he wouldn't 
seek that. He waited for people to draft him. Uh, he, he was afraid of political failure. And when he was nominated as, for president of the United States, he hadn't put himself out there. He was drafted by the delegates of the convention. Um, and so as a result, he never really had fire in his belly for the role. And he had the hardest time writing his inaugural speech. And I really, truly believe it's because he didn't have passion for the presidency. He didn't have a vision for what it could be. And, and then unfortunately, he was inaugurated on March 4th and he was shot on July 2nd and of course died on September 19th. Uh, generally a sad story. I mean, it's also important to note that the great men of this period didn't go into politics, or if they did, they probably would have gone into Congress. Uh, I mean, obviously, Lincoln was assassinated, and we'll get to the, the, the odd connection between the Lincoln and the Garfield assassination. But um, if you were a great man, you might find that you might found a church or a railroad or a, 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 newspaper. a, a mine or a newspaper, but you didn't go into, you certainly didn't want to run for president, did you? Yes, you did. I mean, I think Horace Greeley is a great example. He he was a newspaper man through and through, but he was desperate to hold elective office. And he in, in 1841, he served in Congress briefly, uh, filling out the term of somebody who who had who had left. And he was known for his ridiculous ideas like renaming the United States Columbia. I mean, he was he was extremely unpopular, but it really wet his why, why is that any more ridiculous than calling it the United States of America? Well, they considered it ridiculous in the Congress <laughs> at the time, but he ran for Senate. He ran for governor, and and eventually, in he was an early example of William Randolph Hearst. Perhaps, perhaps, but, but not as odd as uh, you know. I mean, when you think of. The oddities in American history, uh, Randolph Hearst, you know, judging at least from Citizen Kane, was a very odd man, too. You know what? Great men and great women are often eyeballs. <laughs> Sometimes that's what not only They don't have to be great to be eyeballs. Let's also, the other, there's so many connections. You do a wonderful job tying all this stuff together. It took you, uh, I'm sure you had a lot of fun writing this because there are so many loose connections but one of the most amazing stories about the at least the, the garfield assassination is that robert todd lincoln lincoln uh, president lincoln as uh, oldest son was present at both assassinations is that right true and also mckinley's <laughs> he was at three he stopped. He stopped appearing with presidents after that <laughs> because he, yeah, really he was not the kind of person you would want to invite yeah. to an inauguration. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the assassination. I mean, this guy Guiteau sounds such a such a, a, a farcical right. figure. The fact that he actually pulled off a presidential assassination probably was the only thing he ever achieved in his life. Is that fair? That's fair. Um, you know, he was a, actually, a, he was an oddball, but he was a very intelligent guy and he planned it out very, very carefully and he succeeded. And this was a time when presidents didn't have secret service protection. Garfield was going around, you know, just going to the train station with his secretary of state, James Blaine, got off. They were walking the, just the two of them to the, uh, uh, to the train and uh, Gateau fired off two shots and hit, and got him. Now, of course, he didn't die 
right away. It was a very painful. Sorry, I mean, when he died about a year, a month later. Uh, About 10 weeks later. So obviously in horrible pain. And Gateau was um, executed. He was hanged in 1882. Justifiably. I mean, if you're going to justify capital punishment, I guess, if you're going to assassinate the president, you get what you deserve. Um, And then where, where was Robert Todd Lincoln in this particular assassination? Was he at the railway station too? Yes, he was. It was very interesting. When his uh, when his father died, he was not uh, Robert Todd Lincoln was not there at the shooting, but he was there when when Abraham Lincoln passed away. In Garfield's case, yes, he was at the station because Garfield was going on vac- about to start a one month vacation. He was so happy and so excited. He literally did a handspring in his bedroom in the White House before going to the station, and. his cabinet members were going with him, at least for part of the trip. So Robert Todd Lincoln, who was his secretary of war, was there at the station. And after the shooting, he immediately called to get help from a doctor who- probably should have shaved off his head. Then he would have been anonymous and then Guiteau wouldn't have recognized him. (laughs) And then finally, uh, I, I shouldn't, I should I shouldn't make such light of this, but there isn't an element of farce about it, Susan, isn't there? Really, there's an element of farce throughout this whole book. One of the one of the characters I really loved writing about was P.T. Barnum, and why did I write about P.T. Barnum? Oh yeah, you brought him in too. Yeah, the circus man. Yeah, because he was Horace Greeley's best friend. <laughs> so you know, would have been at, who would have been at home in all this is Donald Trump. He would have fitted in perfectly, wouldn't he? Probably so. Probably so. These characters were eccentric and larger than life. But I also wrote about Barnum because hucksterism and hoaxterism was such a thread in the American character then and probably now, too. I haven't traced it to the present day, but certainly in those times to to the extent that after Gateau was hanged, the Army Medical Museum took uh, took possession of his body, put him in a bone boiler preserved his skeleton, but they gave special attention to his head, which they had taken away and stuffed and put it in a glass jar for the amusement of interested visitors. And it, of course, ended up in the possession of a showman named Professor E.M. Worth, who took it on display with a transparent baby and other curiosities. So all the way through, you have the ghost, well, not even the ghost of P.T. Barnum because he was still around, I believe, in 1913 when the when the uh, E.M. Worth's Museum in Indiana burned down. But it's it's just, it was one of those cultural impulses that was so amazing to me. Do so, you think yeah. that could have talked his way into a Dostoevsky novel? I mean, was there any element of seriousness about him or was he just a, um, a huckster, absurd, probably mad huckster? Absurdly mad huckster is probably the best definition of of Gateau. There were, of course, more serious anarchists. This was the age of assassination of men, crazed men, politically, culturally, psychologically, walking around with their revolvers, shooting politicians and generals. So it wasn't that odd also, the assassination. So finally, Susan... What became of um, of the community? Was this its death now? Did this 
uh, give it such bad publicity that it had to shut down? Well, ironically, the community collapsed at about the same time as Garfield's assassination. It was actually a year before the inauguration. Garfield was, in, well, I, no, Garfield was inaugurated in uh, 1881. In 1879, Noyes fled the country. He fled to Canada because he was afraid he was going to be arrested. So he was running the company from Niagara Falls, Canada. But without him as this magnetic leader, the community started falling apart and people started having sex with whoever they wanted without any permission from John Humphrey Noyes or, and his coterie. So things were really out of control. So then Noyes said, okay, I'm giving you a choice between celibacy and traditional marriage. And on 10 o'clock next Wednesday, that's going to go into effect. So you better have fun <laughs> for the next two days. He literally gave them a couple of days notice. And then they turned the community into a joint stock company where every member was given a certain amount of stock in the enterprises. They turned their mansion house into a, a rental property where you could rent it by the square feet. They turned their dining room into an a la carte restaurant where even pats of butter. I'm very contemporary. Did they have a cryptocurrency back then? They had no cryptocurrency back then. And then it continued. Now, I guess... Yeah, it's, 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 is it a sort of a, a tourist curiosity now? Can you visit and look around? You can visit and you can, I believe you can even stay there for the night if you choose to do so. I've been there. I did not stay the night, but I, that's an option.